Did you know that right now there's a group of people running the business of their dreams? They are respected leaders in their field, working with clients they love and serving them profitably. Now, are they famous? Depends on who you ask. They're not signing autographs at the grocery store or taking selfies every five minutes. They're not trying to be everywhere on social media. Yet when they show up at trade events and conferences, they are recognized and sought after. They're the ones everyone else looks up to. They're the next generation of thought leaders in their space. So what's their secret? Well, they've become famously influential to the right people, and so can you. Today, we'll dig into the story of one of these leaders and deconstruct how they became micro-famous. You won't just come away inspired, you'll come away with a new strategy and a new way of thinking. So while your competition is scattered, chaotic, and chasing every shiny object, you can move forward with confidence and clarity. I'm your host, Matt Johnson, agency founder and author of Microfamous. And if you're ready to become famously influential to the right people, let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to Microfamous Conversations. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, to me, these conversations are some of the highlights of my week, and we get to talk about really interesting concepts and ideas and tie it all back into the Microfamous strategy. But I hope it's not just fun for me. I hope you get a ton of value out of these conversations. Today, my guest is Tim Allison. He's the host of Screw the Naysayers podcast and uh, just one of my new favorite people that I've run across just in the podcasting world, a great connection, a great human being, somebody that you can tell cares really deeply and passionately about his podcast listeners, the people that he coaches. And what you might not know about Tim is behind the scenes, he's been running a really niche, I would say, coaching consulting company. Um, coaching entrepreneurs on how to get better in their financial strategy outside of what their CPA, their accountant will tell them because it's not, there's so much more to it than the numbers. And I, and I completely agree with his point of view on this, which is you almost need somebody separate because your accountant, your CPA, your bookkeeper, they are, they do not have a, they have a head for numbers. They don't have a head for business strategy. And so you need someone there with a voice in your ear that can help you interpret and understand the things that your, your balance sheet is telling you, that your P&L is telling you, and, and interpret that and bring that into the realm of actual business strategy. So he's got a really interesting niche kind of coaching consulting business behind the scenes. And then you might know him from the Screw the Naysayers podcast, which has a much larger, more general audience. And so we talk about, well, how do those th two things tie together? is it time to maybe launch a separate podcast? And we talked about the state really of podcasting in 2020 because he's got a lot of insight into what's going on right now, what the trends are, and it's affecting and influencing and, and coloring his decision that he's going through on what's the next step for him in terms of either expanding the focus of his existing podcast or potentially launching a completely new and different podcast that's much more narrowly focused on those ideal clients for that, for that niche coaching company he's been building. So it's a really interesting in-depth conversation with somebody that I hope gives you some, gives you some insight into the decision-making process that people are going through right now with their podcast and tying it into the business that's behind the podcast because that's really one of the weaknesses I see in the podcasting world is people build these podcasts that take off and they have general audiences and lots of enthusiasm, engagement, and people sharing. And then it turns around and it doesn't end up feeding them the ideal clients they originally had in mind for their business or started out as a passion project and it just took off. And so now they're wondering how do I tie it in and how do, how do I use that podcast to attract my ideal clients for the thing where I actually make the bulk of my income and so that's a, that's a lot of the conversations that I think are going on in the podcast world. And this gives you a rare insight into the behind the scenes decision making of someone that's going through that type of process. So I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, Tim, like I said, one of my new favorite people really has a heart for his clients. And I, I know that that's going to come through in the conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Tim Allison of Screw the Naysayers podcast. Tim, officially welcome to the show. Hey, man, it's so much fun to be here today. I know. I've I been looking forward to this since I was on your show, Screw the Naysayers, which is an awesome title. Uh, I know that's <laughs> part of what we're going to talk about today. But uh, before we get into kind of talking, you know, podcasting and marketing, uh, give me some sense of, because you, you come from a really interesting background and you've, you've yeah. built a multi, multi-million dollar company, and then you kind of went in a different direction. So I want to get a sense yeah. of what that company was like first, and then a little bit of the, uh, the transition out of that. Yeah, sure, man. So, look, it's it's really there were three major transitions that I, if I look back and you know in my life, the first was like a lot of folks. I started in the corporate world and and kind of in my twenties, just had success almost came too fast for me, Matt. I mean, I just mm -hmm. soared and I was making six figures way before any of the other people you know that I'd gone to college or university with or any of that kind of stuff. And okay. but you know when I was thirty one, I I sort of not sort of I. 
I left that world. I decided that living in the city and, and trying to be a father for, you know, two young kids and, and a husband and, and also handling the stress and the travel and everything else that my employer was demanding mm-hmm. created a, a conflict that I, I couldn't figure out how to resolve. Some yeah. people can do it. I couldn't. So, so we moved. My wife's from this little rural fishing village in Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, and we moved here at the age of 31. We had two kids under the age of five. Um, and I started um, an educational software company. I mean, the term e-learning didn't exist at the time. I mean, the, the, the internet existed, but not the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. There was no such thing as email. This is what, late 80s or this maybe 1988. You know? okay. And so, I mean, fax machines was about it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and very expensive long distance phone calls and, mm-hmm. and fly in to see your, you know, your customer base. And um, so honestly, that first business was kind of a hit or miss for two or three years. I mean, I essentially just uh, started, I knew a lot about educational technology because of my previous corporate career. And mm-hmm. I started searching out partners that had products that I thought were interesting and, and look for, you know, opportunities to partner. And then up towards the end of the third year, um, ended up, you know, from this little fishing village, concluding an agreement with a, a Fortune, you know, 500 company in the United States that was part of the Jostens Learning or the Jostens family of companies. So the book people and all that kind of stuff. And they had a growing uh, business that with a software product that taught adults um, literacy and numeracy skills, like for people that had not graduated from high school or had got the piece of paper but couldn't really function in their jobs or get a decent job because of that missing piece of paper. And so they were one of the first companies in the world to use technology alongside teachers to Mm -hmm. really compress the learning curve. And I didn't know anything about that market. I I was selling in the corporate space. I knew nothing about it, but I knew the technology was was state-of-the-art. I could just, I just, and and the design. Mm. The andragogy or pedagogy, I mean, I knew enough about it to say, this is special. It's going to work, you know, for a whole lot of reasons. And so by having a big set, I guess, I went and asked them if they wanted to partner in Canada because the issue that uh, that they would have had trying to sell their product up here was that, for example, mathematics lessons were all using imperial measure. And Canada mm-hmm. and most of the rest of the world is using metric. Mm-hmm. So I can't teach, I can teach imperial measure in Canada because mm-hmm. it's good to know it, but we have to be teaching. Yeah, just, just for dealing with us ignorant Americans, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, no, you know what? I mean, we st- honestly, we still go to the grocery store and buy a pound of hamburger or something oh, okay. like that. It's just crazy how some things have adjusted and some haven't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, um, you, but you are a little crazy to be going the, you know, your own way, but what's new? Um, but, you know, look, I mean, uh, anyway, the long story short is that that thing turned into a home run. I, I basically paid to, to get some Canadian content uh, built and, mm-hmm. um, and worked with them on a partnership basis. And I grew that to about $10 million in about a six-year you know, period of time. We ended up having uh, customers with full-side learning centers in those days. There were 115 customers with anywhere from 25 to 50 computers in each of those centers that were being used to train you know, adults going through. And you know, they would test out of stuff they already knew and therefore just focus on the, the, um, you know, the things that they needed. And of course, not surprisingly, at-risk youth really will like more be, being treated like adults a lot more than they like being treated like children. Imagine so that. they really, it's funny, isn't it? So they really gravitated to the system. And it, you know, it was, it was, it was transformational in so many ways because not only did I make a, you know, a, a good living, a great living, and and got a business going and employed a bunch of people and paid very, you know, good wages to people in rural communities. But, you know, I also learned for the first time what it's like to be running a business that it's about, that is about more than money, that it wasn't about making a salary, you know, and I, I got the satisfaction I got when I get a little video clip or an email or a message from someone who'd gone through the program. I still remember, you know, one woman, she was an Aboriginal first nations person in Canada. And she wrote me this little testimonial and said, you know, I dropped out of, out of high school or school when, you know, when I was like 15 or 16, my daughter turned 16 at 16 dropped out. And we went back into this this program together that was offered in the community using your program, both of us. And we've both graduated and we're both getting jobs. And, you know, I don't know how, Matt, how you put price tags on yeah. things like that. I think you can't. And so, yeah. um, so that was just a wonderful little run. But as is the case with a lot of 
um, you know, a, a lot of things in this world, especially in the space of educational technology. By the early 2000s, the internet was now a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And the whole process that people were using to produce educational technology was changing so fast that yeah. a small company like mine, I couldn't keep up. As really? fast as I had something built, mm -hmm. you know, the technology was obsoleted and yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. was on to something else. And and both of our kids, one child had graduated from, from college. The other one was halfway through. It just felt like time to, you know, maybe, you know, make a switch. And yeah. um, and so we did that. And then I, I did like 14 years or so. What I'm still doing really acting as a business coach and mentor um, for small numbers of, you know, of entrepreneurs. My expertise tends to lie in the whole area of financial analysis and having people sort of why they're not making money when they're working hard and getting tested <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and, um, and then of course at age 60, I, as, as what I thought of as a legacy project at the time, I'm not so sure that it hasn't grown into a lot more than that, but I, I started the Screw the Naysayers podcast, not having a clue what a podcast was really all about or, or the journey that I was about to embark upon. Because <laughs> Well, I want to get into that. I, so I have one, I think one last question on the, on the software business and just ru running a $10 million company compared to your lifestyle now, was it, was it the right thing for the right time? Was there anything you would do differently? The only thing I would do differently is that for the first two or three years, I really was thinking small math because I mean, I had to use my pun, I'd screwed the naysayers who said, you're crazy to quit a job like that. I mean, I was in the top 2% of wage earners in, in, in Canada at the time. I mean, and it would have been, this dollar amount would have put me in roughly the same spot south of the border in your country. I mean, mm. um, and so people thought I was insane and crazy and all of that kind of stuff. So I said, screw you. I mean, this is what I know I have to do for my family and for my lifestyle and all those kind of things. Um, the mistake I made, though, was that for a couple of years there, I honestly thought that I had sort of sacrificed my career in order to make this decision to be a, uh, a family person, to live in the country, to raise our kids where we wanted to raise it. So for a couple of years, if people said, what's your goal in business? Mm -hmm. uh, my answer would be, well, I want to make enough money to keep a roof over our head and put food on the table. <laughs> and the human mind being what the human mind is, that's pretty much what I did for almost three years. Oh, really, it was only it was only when a mentor of mine he's, he's now passed, but a good buddy of mine. Um, who I ended up I met him for the first time. He was he's a, a, a Bostonian of Polish descent who was living in California at the time. Was just a crazy <laughs> guy. Uh, Ray Zabrick became just such a great friend. But I met him at a conference, and we were sitting. We talked a bit about my background. He's one of these guys that's very good at getting you to talk like you very good at getting people to talk about themselves. And so I shared my background and everything. And he asked me what I was doing. And I told him and he looked at me and he's like, well, what the hell are you doing, man? I mean, how long have you been out? He said, well, three years. He said, well, three years. I mean, why aren't you doing more than you were doing when you were in Toronto? And I said, well, Roy, you don't understand. I live in this little fishing village. Everybody thinks I walk around with rubber boots and a Southwester hat or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, most of your listeners who are too young to remember the days when we had to, to mail a check to pay a credit card bill. Right. <laughs> but back in the day, that's what American Express made you do. And this is the analogy that Roy gave me that sort of changed my life. He said, Tim, he said, he said, every month I write a very large check to American Express. I said, yeah. He said, where do you think I mail it? I, said, I don't know. He said, well, neither do I, but I do know it's someplace in either North Dakota or South Dakota or some tiny little place I've ever heard of. He says, do you think I care where that check's going? I said, well, I, you know, I suppose not. He said, well, you're just putting a, a barrier up in your own mind that says because you're located in that community, you have to think small. And once I sort of realized that he was right, and we had, he ended up playing a role in helping me create that partnership with the, the company I was referencing earlier with the Johnsons, of the, uh, you know, company, I mean, then I started saying, well, you know, how could I turn my, my community and where I live and everything to an advantage? And I found all sorts of advantages. Yeah. I, could hire, I could hire people for that yeah. and pay them a really good wage Yeah, oh, yeah. and give them year-round work and white-collar work in a community where they couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. So they were loyal as hell, but I was still paying less than I would have been paying in a city. Yeah. I, I built my own office building when I decided I couldn't find something that I could wire properly for all our computers. Mm -hmm. I just bought an old house, tore it down. You know, I built a, you know, a rectangular box office, <laughs> wired all the walls with everything I wanted. Yeah. For like, even in the day in the 90s for like $50,000 or something. Holy like cow. Good. You Lord. know, it was, it was nuts. And then, yeah. and then I realized that, yes, I have to travel a lot to see people and the people I hired did, but 
I also live in a part of the country that in the summertime, folks love to come down on vacation yeah. on the Atlantic Ocean and all that. I started hosting an annual event at, at a really big, you know, uh, splashy resort that, you know, old school resort looking out at the ocean and everything. And mm. I, the deal was to my customers, you had to get here. But once you got there, I'd, I'd pay for you and, and your partner, spouse, significant other for two mm-hmm. nights. We'd have a, a jam-packed agenda with it. You know, we'd be talking not about any of the products I sold, but we'd be having panel discussions about issues related to education, technology and education. Love it. We'd bring in people. We'd get everybody involved in the conversation so you could network with people from across the country. Mm-hmm. And we'd have a full spousal program so the partner wants to go whale watching when you're in these things. And every night we had nice banquets and we arranged, you know, local mus- musicians, you know, the t- uh, fiddle players and all that kind of stuff, dancers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, God, I mean, they, I, I had to turn people away because they would look oh, yeah. because they, and a lot of them had budget for professional development. Right. They would have paid to fly out. Instead of flying out, they took vacation, they put their spouse in the car, they drove, Yeah. took the money that they would have used to, you know, <laughs> for the airfare, paid for all of that stuff okay. and got, and then combined it into a vacation when they were down here. Yeah, you know, nice. and, and went back. So, I mean, it's all mindset, isn't it? I don't know. I, yeah. I went off in a different direction, but it, it's really, you know, in terms of what I would have done different, I would have, um, I would have thought bigger, faster, and I would have definitely looked for advantages in my current situation instead of buying into the idea that there were there were inherent disadvantages because every yeah. location has inherent disadvantages. Yeah, and I th- I think I did I I did kind of the opposite thing. Um, I had that same thing because I'm from some random small town in the Midwest, and so I came out to San Diego, and it just kind of worked out like this. But there there was a time there where I'm like where I, where I was very proud to say like I was based in San Diego and that's true and I, and I love it as a city but looking back on it now that was way more about me I could have based I, I could have been based in random small town in Iowa I don't sure. think it would have made much of a difference I don't meet most of my clients at the events in San Diego now it's no. great you know that they come down and the clients come down and come through town and yes I can grab a drink with them you know, a little bit more often than if I was in the middle of the oh, country sure. but in terms of like actually building the business and the reputation yeah I don't think being in the big city made any difference for me, but I, I totally get you as far as getting uh, like thinking bigger, faster. Let's talk about like when you got into the coaching side, um, how did you identify who you most wanted to work with, who you, who were like driven to, to lead them and impact their lives? What was that person? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of evolved if I'm, if I'm just going to be, you know, yeah, of course. part of it's been impacted by what's going on right now. But yeah. what I, what I discovered when I started looking around my region, which was, you know, Atlantic Canada, mm-hmm. rural communities are the foundations of rural communities, um, Matt, are small businesses. Mm. They are they are individuals. They're family run, you know, events or organizations. I should say, um, you know, these people put their heart and soul into their businesses. They are the community in many ways. Like whenever mm. there's a, a fundraiser or something going on, they're the ones that step up and and do things and they you know provide the you know the summer employment for kids and new opportunities and all this kind of stuff. And what I discovered is that just like me, like I didn't know anything about the business of running a business when I started my company. I knew a lot about yeah. education, technology and selling, which is great. And it's, those are pretty important skills, especially the selling thing is a pretty important skill <laughs> yeah. to have. But, you know, I learned, I, I self-taught myself the whole financial side of, of you know, of running a business. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered, and I'll give credit to a, another fellow entrepreneur that was a partner of mine for a number of years now, what we realized is that the vast majority of, of, of these smaller businesses, the people that... I think the best business owners, no offense to all of the folks that went through you know, college and university came out with a business degree. <laughs> I don't see many of them running the businesses. No. I see them in accounting jobs and all that kind of stuff. The best entrepreneurs are the ones that are crazy passionate about something they want to provide, something they're good at, something they care about. But what most of them have never had is any foundational training on on the fun, the money side of things. Yeah. So how do you know how to price you you know at what price point you should use for your product? Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're trying to decide, should I? Is now the time to launch a new product or a new service? And you know, is it going to be viable? And how do I figure that out? And nope, they've never gone through any kind of structured process on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I did is I just find myself gravitating to to companies that um, had been around for a bit. But, but were primarily first-time business owners mm-hmm. um, that were working hard that did have a good product. 
that what they were gotcha. doing, they were they had a good product or service. They they could were good at what they do, mm-hmm. but they weren't being fairly rewarded for the time that they were putting into it. They were right. putting insane hours in. They couldn't figure out what you know. Sometimes they were spending way too much time on on something that wasn't even making them any money. <laughs> very little time on time. You know, these are things when you come in from the outside, especially with a trained eye. Like I can take a set of financial statements, uh, you know, from a business. And if you give me a couple of years worth and a half an hour, I'm going to be able to tell you exactly where the issues are, you know, in the organization from the financial side of things. And right. and, and um, hmm. the difficulty that I've discovered is, is that the accounting business that's out there, it seemed to have a vested interest, it feels like, in, in keeping this all mysterious for the yeah. business owners because that way they get paid and, and the business owners don't ask a lot of questions about how they choose to keep their records or whether they're breaking out, you know, cost of goods sold, for example, for individual product lines right. or just one category, which doesn't tell you anything because you can't yeah. assess, you know, profitability. Um, and so that's what I ended up doing. I started making enemies out of a lot of accountants because the, the <laughs> getting empowered and they started demanding a lot of changes in the way the information was mm. presented back to them. Because I'm just of this belief that that we should be as business owner, we should be able to look at our financials and within 15 minutes we should have a we should have identified any positive or negative trends that have taken place in the last 30 to 90 days. Just just mm. get casually looking at them mm. without any any great work. And certainly within within um, you know, half an hour, we should have been able to identify if we've got any kind of negative trend going on, exactly what we need to dig into and, and, and find the answer. Because it's not hard. And the problem is, is that we outsource, we tend to outsource our accounting, and people don't provide it. They provide it to us to make sure that we can comply with tax obligations. Yeah, exactly. We have to do a quarterly or how often we have to remit, it depends on what jurisdiction or whatever. And, and same thing with your, you know, and then they'll only give you the minimum that's required for that report. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and so by not keeping this stuff up to date, they keep the business owner in the dark. And, you yeah. know, my frustration is that I'll, I, I'll get called in. And sometimes by a lending agency who might even pay me, might say, you know, these guys are in trouble. Can you go help them out? And I'll go and I'll wow. say, well, damn, if you'd called me like 18 months ago, I could have told you exactly where, what was going. But anything can be fixed, Matt. But yeah. the problem is that the longer you let it go, the more money it potentially takes to fix it or the bigger hole you've dug in. Yeah. So I'm looking for those heart-centered people whose businesses are about making a contribution to a community or, and a community can be local or global. Right. Or it doesn't matter, but they're heart-centered. They're in it for the right reasons. They definitely want to make a profit, but it, but the business is not all about money because they're the ones who typically don't pay enough attention to it. Right. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and I need them to, I need people to understand that the lesson that I learned is when we're not making money, we can't help people. Like yeah. if we're not actually able to pay our own bills and, and pay our team members. And, you know, in my day, it was a lot of employees. Now, most of it would be outsourced, same as much mm-hmm. of your model would be yeah. type of thing. But I mean, if we can't pay them, then we can't, we're not really able to deliver anything to anybody. Yeah. 100% so it always true. comes back to that. And, and, um, and I just see there's, there's a gap. There really is a gap of, uh, I call it sort of providing old school biz advice to, to entrepreneurs who are just getting started. And and, um, and it's nothing I learned. And I've taken graduate level courses in, in accounting and stuff, and I didn't learn a thing there that I applied. Really? Not, not a bit. Not a bit. That's I mean, it's just, it's things like, you know, case studies on Fortune 100 companies. And um, and even I've recently, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I was uh, interviewing, I hired some a university co-op co-op co- student to work for like four months for me. And I, so I interviewed, I remember one of the, the young men that I interviewed was a, you know, a finance major at, mm-hmm. at a highly respected, you know, university out here. But I asked him about what he was studying in finance. And I said, well, you're learning nothing that will prepare mm-hmm. you to be an entrepreneur. You know, really? you, 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 well, it is bad. It's, it's mm-hmm. horrific. There's such a massive disconnect and all these boring accounting texts. The reality is you don't even, it's good to understand those basics, but unless you plan to be a CPA or something like that, most of the software that's available nowadays is so brain dead easy that you can almost just take a picture of your receipts and scan it up and it gets, you know, it literally has come to that yeah. or send it to somebody. What, what, what they, what we need to be teaching every business owner is what the heck to do with the information. Yeah. 
you know, before it's too late. Because, yeah. I mean, the, the, the failure rates in small business, I mean, <clears throat> what's really interesting is something that I don't think most people know, but in, in and I don't have, you know, recent stats as a result of what's going on right now, but um, in North America, Canada and the United States, the number of small business closures that result from bankruptcy is so tiny to be almost negligible. Like there's a huge, there's a huge number of small businesses that close every year. Right. And the only reason the numbers have, have continued to grow is that, or stay stable, like in the 2008 period, they stopped growing, but at least as many new businesses came in, yeah. in a year as went out type of thing. Okay. But they're, they're not leaving because they're bankrupt. They're not leaving because they're having to say, I got to close the doors because the bank or the, you know, somebody's coming to take my stuff. They just give up. Like oh, they, they give up. I see what you mean. Okay. And they, and they give up because at the end of the day, people are telling them it's all about, you know, helping others and it's all about having a massive impact and it's all about your social media following and it's all about touching 10 million people. And I know we're touching on territory we really agree on, but they're, yeah. they're, they're, they get caught up in that whirlwind. They get caught up in uh, to sell. I don't actually have to talk to an individual. I can just, because they're just, they're just these internet numbers. Yeah. So as long as I pour enough of them into my funnel, then I'm going to get this money just magically flows out the bottom and they, they go all in on these, these strategies. Yeah. And despite having a very valid needed, you know, product or service solution, they end up quitting. Right. And, and so that's my mission is to really try and to, uh, to change that. Yeah, that was, that was so good. <laughs> I think I might pull that out for the clip for this, uh, this episode. Cause yeah, I mean, and like you said, you hit on the part that we agree on cause you're, you're exactly right. And, and, the person I would consider my one of my business mentors uh, is exactly the same way. Uh, he said something really good one time that profit is a story. Like you can look at a P&L, you can look at a balance sheet and you can tease out the story of the business. And it sounds like you feel that that same way because uh, you're exactly right. That's that's what we're missing. And then we've gone in all, all on the the idea that, yeah, just what you said about that you don't have to talk to a person to make a sale. We have gone way in on that. <laughs> You know, people say, oh, well, if it's $1,200, i have heard this so many times, man. Well, if it's less than $1,200, you shouldn't have to talk to them. Right. Hello. <laughs> I don't know what world you're living in, and I've made a few bucks in my life, but I don't typically spend $1,200 if, if I don't know who the heck I'm giving the money to. Yeah. It's yeah. just really, it's just fantasy land. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and, and, it, and it really, it's caused people, when Seth Godin was on, was on Screw the Naysayers, we got into this whole topic really deep. And, yeah. Um, because he talked about um, a minimally viable audience. Yeah. You know, I've heard before, you know, you know, from my work with some manufacturing companies, the idea of a minimally viable product is an old time slogan. They'll say, build something, a prototype to the, to the point where it's at least something you can demonstrate to people and get out there and sell it. But he's saying in marketing, it's the same way. And, and you know, he's suggesting that if people would just focus on the 100 true followers that they might be able to find. I know that the, the you know, the, the, and I can't remember the gentleman who wrote the book so way back, but I mean, the idea of a thousand, but the reality is most small businesses couldn't handle a thousand rabid followers. <laughs> they would not be able to keep up with the, you know, That's with a the good demand. Point. You know, yeah, if you point. had, I have talked to Sophie, especially, especially folks that are in some sort of service-based business. You show me uh, one of those businesses that tells me that they could handle more than a hundred clients in a twelve-month period, hmm. and I'm gonna, you know, I'd, be a, I'd like to meet them. Calling BS. <laughs> well, yeah. or I'd like to, I'd really like to congratulate them. Yes. The reality yeah. is, you, you know, if you, to do that and to sustain value, uh -huh. you're doing something pretty unique. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I'm not saying they're not out there, but it, it's rare. Yeah, I mean that would break that would break most businesses. I, I've gone through that twice, where growth just broke everything. You know, yeah. we had to rebuild our systems and all that stuff. Um, so let's, let's transition into the, the screw the naysayers a little bit because I'm curious yeah. where you mentioned that it, that it was originally a legacy project. So I'm curious what you meant by that and yeah. why. Well, like how is it how is it grown and kind of where does it fit into your world? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I mean, it's, it's an interesting time for, you know, for us to be talking because I've been reflecting a lot upon that, you know, this, this, this last little bit. But so look, it started just basically because I, I was in the process of writing a book, which, I've, which is out, Screw the Naysayers, They Suck Anyways, it's called. It's a funny little thing if, <laughs> if people want a really good humorous uh, and yet sort of honest uh, look at, 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 
uh, at, at the idea of transitioning uh, away from what society expects of us right. to the life that we want to live. But um, Matt, I took I took a couple of the chapters because I, my writing style is very unique, and in some ways, it's almost poetic in the sense that some of my chapters are like a page and a half long. They're very short. Oh, yeah. And so I went, believe it or not, I got invited to a poetry reading with a bunch of young people. And so my wife looked at me like I had 19 heads and said, no, I'm not going with you. (laughs) But I I went into town and I listened to all of these young people get up and read these amazing poems and rap and all this kind of stuff. And then this old guy staggered up with his glasses and, you know, barely able to sort of, you know, read. But I read a couple of the things, um, a couple of the chapters and... Um, in those events, I didn't know this, but you can't, you don't clap, you, you know, you click your fingers and oh, yeah. uh, at least that was the routine here. So, but anyway, everybody kind of went crazy and yeah. afterwards they came up and I thought, you know, the message is resonating um, with people of all ages that we've got to stop allowing society to define what success looks like, mm-hmm. that we also have to stop um, always placing profits over people profits over the environment. We've got to find a way to live a life that is fulfilling, that, that respects our environment, that we feel good about, that includes our family and all of these kind of things. And we're helpful, you know, supportive of others. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, hell, I'm going to start a podcast called Screw the Naysayers. And anybody who says you can't do it, the tagline, you probably can't read it, but it's know the life you want and have the courage to live it, which is something I wrote like 25 years ago. And, um, and so I just started and I just started, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I hired the co-op student to help me with the technology mm-hmm. to help me get set up. Um, I can do it all now. I, I don't do everything anymore, but I can, and I have yeah. in a period of time. And I just started interviewing and there was something, the good part of it is this, the name was magical and is magical. Yeah, um, it, it attracts people from around the globe. Um, and some of them have been pretty significant names. I've had people like mm-hmm. Seth Golden. I've had Jack Canfield from Chicken Soup for Your Soul on the show, mm-hmm. which is a pretty hard guest. I've had um, um, Mitzi Perdue, whose, whose father started the Sheridan Hotel chains during the, oh, wow. the Great Depression, and whose husband, Frank Perdue, started the whole Perdue chicken you know, farm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. She's, she's her own entrepreneur in her own right, uh, and many, many others. But, yeah. but I also started getting um, – I got a really eclectic mix. And so the brand is growing and I'm two, 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 two years in May. So like, you know, I'm coming up on two and a half years, I guess. It's definitely a global brand. Um, it gets me attention and I can get doors open. I can, I'm getting, you know, outreaches from publicists and from agents and publishers on a regular basis now. Are you really? Offering guests. Yeah. Which is Love really it. pretty cool after an only yeah. two years to, you know, to be building these kind of relationships. And um, so I'm having a great time with it. Here's what, it, what, I, what I didn't understand when I got started. And it kind of fits into the theme of your show. And that is that screw the naysayers, because I, I deliberately allowed people to define what that meant. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't tell you what life you should live. So know the life you want to live. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever that is, it yeah. is. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, I've had people, I've had wonderful people and authors that have, uh, women that have come on my show that have talked about childhood sexual abuse and, 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 and rape. I've had burn survivors. I've had people who have suffered terrible physical accidents and been, you know, paralyzed and, and had dramatic changes in their life. All coming on not to talk about surviving, but to talk about, I, most of them say, not in the case of the rape, but certainly right. in, in the case of, you know, a, a life-changing um, Tasha Shu became a, a C5 paraplegic when she fell through a trapdoor on a stage hmm. in high school. And she says she's thankful, 20 years later, she's thankful for the accident wow. and everything that's brought her life. Um, and I have all these entrepreneurs who are following, you know, my, you know, path and wanting to get out and leave the corporate world and all that. Mm-hmm. What it is, what it, what it has done in terms of, and what I've been reflecting on is that I've got this brand, um, but it is it is a very wide um, it's a very wide net, yeah. uh, you know, of, of people that I'm bringing in. And I didn't start it with any intent of monetizing it. Right. See, that's the thing. I, that was never the intent. So that, yeah. So you meant it like legacy project in the sense that you wanted to interview the people, get the message out there, but you weren't concerned with the, with whether they turned into business coaching clients. No, I couldn't care less. It, yeah. it, it wasn't even, it wasn't on the agenda at all. <laughs> it was about helping and, and, and sharing my experiences and the knowledge and, you know, of amplifying the voices, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of people that could inspire um, um, and educate folks on how to, you know, expect more from life, 
Mm-hmm. If you want to become, you know, an entrepreneur, if you if you want to defy conventional wisdom, if you choose not to go to a four-year college because you don't want to be $200,000 in debt and you think there's another path. I mean, it was about having those kinds of discussions. Mm-hmm. And in that in that sense, um, it's the best thing I've ever done. We're coming up on 300 episodes. Um, I don't see stopping at any time soon. But what I'm reflecting upon is uh, is – um, I'm I'm still a little torn. So depending on when this goes, I may uh, public. I may have the the answer. But I I'm either going to start a second podcast in the fall that is much more uh, tightly focused on first time entrepreneurs um, and probably first time entrepreneurs that are older who have you know gone through this corporate space and are either being forced out of the corporate world earlier than they had expected yeah. or want or, or now realize that they're going to be yeah. so so they because all the research says if you're hanging on you're you know it's it's not much of a uh, a safety net to be you know mm-hmm. holding on to so i think i'm you know i might um, i have the uh, but what i'm also wondering is the extent that i could just pivot this the, the show um, to focus more on those topics but uh, mm-hmm. in doing so it would close off some of the the groups that have felt really represented and importantly represented, you know, so that's the, that's the yes. Tim's debate as he's camping this summer trying to figure it out, but it's a nice situation yeah. to be in. It is. It, it is. And, and I like, so I'm having those same discussions. I've got at least two clients having the same discussions where their main podcast has been, I would say primarily interview based, but not exclusively because I encourage them all. And I've always done solo episodes on my show. And so, cause I think people want to hear your yeah. point of view. Like once they get to know you, like they're like, okay, like give me, I want more Tim. You know, I don't, I don't just want to hear you interview amazing people. Uh, and yeah, like, I, so believe me, I've had a lot of those discussions. The, the conclusion I came to with mine is to split off the interview episodes into its own podcast and then uh, focus the micro famous podcast around solo episodes and very specific clips from certain conversations that I can elaborate on and things like that. Now what that remains to be seen, whether that's the right strategy, but I do think it's, I think there's going to be a lot of people I bet in our space that start doing some sort of dual podcast strategy for exactly the reason you mentioned, which is that like you feel that need, like you, you're having all these amazing conversations and then you're like, yeah, but I need to, like, I need to give people a place where by listening to it, it changes their beliefs and it changes their actions for a very specific kind of person. So it sounds yeah. like you're feeling that same thing. Well, I think I think just about everybody in the podcast space is is going that's been around a bit is going through that you know that thought process. I I co-hosted a you know a podcast summit an all day event uh, you know um, um, last month and you know we had people like Kate Erickson who's partners with John Lee Dumas at Entrepreneurs mm-hmm. on Fire. Kate mm-hmm. talked about the fact they're down to you know, three days a week, and they very much, you know, changing up a lot of their model. Um, Michelle, <clears throat> I'm going to be embarrassed here because I can't remember her last name. I can remember the name of her new podcast. It's called The Abundant Accountant. Like yeah. us, or like me, she has a fairly broad, generally, it's been quite successful. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, her business is primarily working with accounts. So mm-hmm. she started a podcast called it The Abundant Accountant. Yeah. And it's openly admitting she makes way more money through those conversations and, and, <laughs> yeah. and then she does the other, but she's going to continue yeah. the other one. And, yeah. and um, you know, cause once you get to the, the thing with the shows like ours, certainly with screw the naysayers at this stage, it's not difficult for me to keep it going. I may not publish quite as frequently. I'm doing still doing three days a week right now. Mm-hmm. And in, in May and, and, and most of June, I went seven days a week during the, the pandemic. I just Ooh. went all in. I recorded over a hundred episodes, yeah. um, but I've got a ton of stuff too. Like most podcasters, and this is what folks don't, I made a note when you mentioned clips because mm-hmm. most podcasters just don't understand the wealth that they're, they're, they're sitting on That's um, true. to go back into our archives and create not just a promotional clip for an individual episode, which we've all done mm-hmm. but to put them together, you know, in, 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 in topics and, and, you know, what do you want to call it? A, who was it? Uh, Nick Loper, uh, who was, I spoke to on that summit next with the site side hustle uh, nation mm-hmm. um, and great podcast, but he has what he calls a mixed tape <laughs> and he's taking yeah. stuff, you know, and I thought, what a cool thought process. That's a really That's great way to put it. But it yeah, is kind I of would have called thing. it. I've heard it called like a, you know, like roundup blog posts used yeah, to be a big yeah. thing when blog posts yeah. were all the rage. Yeah. It's like an but audio version of, of a, a little yeah. mixed tape where you put some things together and if you, you know, you integrate or we integrate as our host, well, this is what I took from this conversation, mm-hmm. you know, from Seth and, and all these other ones. So I think we're, I think we're positioned in a lot of different ways to, 
to, to work with it. I do think, I do feel the industry is facing a, um, not facing, that's not the right word. I do think we're going to see a lot of change, you know, in, in, in the next year, because what we've, we've, we're continuing to have this massive influx of people and they're all following, you know, coaches and systems that, that for the most part, aren't really starting with the conversation about why are you doing this for your business? It's, yes. it's much more about what technology do you need? Well, I here I have a, a one size fits all agency and I can, you know, you can record it, then I can edit it and I can put your intro in and then I can make your video clip and I'll do all the work. All you have to do is do the interview and then magical good things are going to happen, which, um, and then some of them will even say, we'll do all of the social media for you, but mm-hmm. none of that will get you anything. Yeah. You, you get, you'll have a podcast that doesn't, change your life at all yeah. or anybody else's life you know, for that. <laughs> um, it's just the reality yeah. so i do think that we're going to see um you know a bit of a shake-up and mm-hmm. um, um and of course the other big issue is that the big publishers are have come in with massive amounts of money so some of the really big shows it's going to be in we cannot compete in in terms of trying to get as many um ears or eyes depending if it's a you know a video or audio we can't compete against those publishers they're going to get the millions of eyes mm-hmm. they're going to get tom hanks and oprah winfrey to do to, to guest appearances on their shows yeah they're going to use those things they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising mm-hmm. because they know when they get millions and millions of listeners that you know that that's an advertising vehicle that they can you know they can monetize yep. both for their own products and services and you know and for others so the future for podcasting, for independent podcasting, needs to be niched. It yeah. really needs to be what audience yeah. that you really want to talk to. And just do that better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardest part for everybody is just figuring out um, what that niche is. Mm-hmm. Being, getting to the point where, where you're uncomfortable, you believe that that niche might not be big enough, but you're still, you're still willing to do it. Because anything above that is going to be too big. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I'm still dwelling with. Like, let's go here, analyze my, my idea. Like, if I just said mm-hmm. new entrepreneurs, first-time mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, well, that's everything from a 14-year-old to a 9-year-old. Yes. And it's yeah, everything yeah. from somebody who's come out of Stanford MI, you know, or MIT or something is ready to do a, a $20 million raise yep. down to somebody who's opening a barbershop. Yep. You know, I'm really not down far enough, you know, in terms of and, – and I know it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a good point. I think, didn't we talk about this on, on our episode together of your show? It, uh, Cause you said, I think you said something about you niche down until it hurts. Yeah. Well, that's what John Lee, that? well, John Lee Dumas, when he John, was on my show, okay. I, you know, you know, entrepreneurs on fire and he, you only get 15 minutes with John Lee unless you're <laughs> really quite amazing. Um, so I was really organized with my questions, but my last question was, was if there was one piece of advice that he could give to new podcasters, what would it be? And his instant answer was niche down until it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and I do think he's right. I, I think that's where the opportunities lie, but they don't lie in the people that are trying to come into podcasting because they want to be celebrities or because they want to be, mm-hmm. you know, stars like they see the YouTube stars and all that. Yeah. I mean, good luck to you if that's what you want to do. Most of those people will not succeed. Um, and, and, and honestly, that's the reason why I think the stats are changing so frequently, but the, the, the average show has less than 35 episodes or something like that before people give up. <laughs> Does not surprise you know. me. Yeah. No. Yeah. You have to realize, especially for a business owner, um, you have to do something that's sustainable. So you're, you're trying to balance like what works best in the podcasting realm versus what actually works well for your business. You know, most people can't be JLD and put out an episode a day. Oh, God, no. And even now, he's done three. And, and then I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you that, that, you know, the three a day I'm doing right now is, um, is possible because I just went, you know, when the pandemic hit, I went on a recording binge. Yeah. I said, okay, there's a whole bunch of people that are normally very difficult to get a hold of because they're usually on stages everywhere selling their books and their training and all this kind of stuff. That's how I get people like Jack Canfield and, and so many others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just reached out like crazy to those people. And I was literally recording, you know, Day after day after day, you know, I don't know, 120 episodes in a short period of time. <laughs> so I've got them. I've got them there. But yeah. you and I both know that, that no matter how much you outsource, that, that you are going to be working hard on your podcast. And you're well, if be, you want it to work, intellectual yeah. thought process into it. Yes, yes, and that that is a great point, and it's that's why I try to get across to the clients that look, if you're going to put extra time into something, don't don't put extra time into trying to create a system that puts 70 tweets a day on Twitter. 
like put it into thinking harder about your content. So you're more niche down, you're giving people what they can't find somewhere else and then actually engage on social media rather than just post and run. And that's the, if I could, if I could make those two changes, which is what I try to do with the book and I'm trying to do with the book because I cover both of those things. But yeah, it's uh, the idea that you can put up an interview podcast that's relatively unfocused, very general, isn't niche down and that you just take off and become the next JLD. Like those days have come and gone. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, and to a certain extent, I defied it. But I'll tell you one thing: if I tried to, well, if I tried to do, and, and even there, I'm not anywhere near. I would never try to pretend right. I'm not in JLD space. But I know that if I tried to start screw the naysayers today using the same strategies that I used just two years ago, it, mm. it would not work. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 and and I I can point to there's people like what Jeremy Ryan Slate is about a, a year maybe two years ahead of me type of thing for create your own life. But, you know, I look at his growth stats and what happened in his years three and four mm-hmm. are astronomical. I mean, the, yeah. the shows that have really done that, they've grinded it and they grind it and they grind it. And I know people don't like that word, yeah. but if your goal is to really get to like, you know, Jeremy's doing 50,000 downloads a month or something. Mm-hmm. If your goal is to get there, then you're going to really be grinding it. I mean, you know, unless you're yeah. getting, you know, but the, the, the thing is, it's a stupid goal if you don't know who those 50,000 people are. <laughs> I'd rather have 100 people that wanted to buy something from me than 50,000 people telling me it's a, like, I, yeah. I did start it as a legacy, so I can do a certain amount, but I'm not prepared to work as hard as I have been working, mm-hmm. um, you know, for free, right. you know, and so that's when you sort of start to, you know, and there are other ways. I've resisted. I don't want to advertise. Um, I, I, you know, and I don't know that I'd make that much anyway, but I'm choosing not to go the commercialization of the main podcast. I think I'm going to keep right. it pure yeah. and, uh, and run it. But now yeah. it's all set up and it's not hard for me to do. I can, right. I, I get lots of requests from good yeah. people to be on the show. So. Yeah, it, it does. It makes such a difference. I think people underestimate um, podcasting is really fun up to about six months. If you're not made, like if it's just a legacy project, a passion project, it's really fun for about six months. Then you start going, okay, where, where's the reward? And if the conversations themselves aren't enough, you got a problem. Yeah. And it's been an amazing professional development experience. I'll make no bones of it. Best professional development experience of my entire life. Really? Um, but the re- but you do, I mean, our human nature being what it is, unless you're at a stage where everything you do in life is philanthropic, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah. you know, you do get to a certain stage where, you know, you want to start to get out and have more impact and, and, and to do that, you're going to spend money. Mm-hmm. So true. I think you need, I think a podcast has to be looked at, um, almost like its own little business. Why am I starting this? What do I hope to achieve for it? You know, from it, it may be to attract customers. It may simply to be to grow the brand. That's fine. As long as you know what your, what your goal is and you're very explicit about what that goal is, you know, going into it, but people aren't even having that conversation. They get, they get dragged right into the how, you know, how is it done? And why people are, are, you know, are paying to to just understand that stuff. Uh, doesn't make any sense to me because you could learn that stuff by, by looking at YouTube. Yeah, if you, that's want, true. if you want somebody to do it, that's a different story. Right. But if you're getting somebody to just teach you how to get this stuff started, you know, hot pay, spend your money on talking to someone like you or myself or somebody that's going to actually help you from the business standpoint, get that podcast pointed in a direction that's going to be sustainable and get you the things you want from it. Yeah. That's where people aren't investing the time and money in my experience. And by the time they figure out that they should have done that, they've spent a whole lot of money on things that really haven't moved the bar for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, get the front, get the, it's like, it's like all these systems to scan. I don't mean to, you know, talk down your business because I don't, I hope it doesn't, it's not coming across that way because mm-hmm. but the way I relate it, um, Matt, is like, in, you know, in, in all these businesses that are trying to tell people that, you know, you have to figure out how to scale your business. You need funnels and you need all, you know, lead magnets and all, it's all about scale, scale, scale. Mm-hmm. People are trying to scale the business before they've even got a customer. <laughs> and so the issue that I, that I, that I say with the, with the podcast, you will want help. I promise you, you're going to want help, you know, at a, at a certain stage, but make sure you've figured out all those foundational elements first so that you know what you're investing in. And then you're investing in the production of a, 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 of a service or, or, or a product, or in this case, a podcast, that's going to meet specific objectives for your business. And you can measure them. Yes. And therefore, you can justify the expense. Yeah. And, and it won't be giggling on Friday and saying, I'm wondering if I, you know, it's a lot of work, or I just paid so-and-so. I wonder if I didn't, you know, if that's really worth it. Well, if you can't answer that question, it's your own fault. You didn't right. do the work up front. Yeah. 
And it's harder to do it after the fact. It can be done. It can be done at any time. It can be done. It's harder you, to you do. Can, you can shift like, and rebrand, and I know plenty of people that have, but yes. It's, it's a, and it just it creates a lot of questions, and it's a lot better if you don't have to if you get the branding right the first time. And I think you can. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a lot of people that I think are are fortunate to have started something, it took off, and then they were able to mid-flight get it tweaked to where it produced the results oh, yeah. they wanted. That, that's, I've seen that a lot. I mean, yeah. I think most of the, truly most of the people that I, my friends of the podcasting sector that are kicking it, that's exactly what they've done. Yeah. And the fact that, it, you know, I'm not at all discouraged. I'm just a little over two years in. And when I realized that, you know, I started this podcast in the middle of the same fishing village that I was talking about, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I have I have done I think one in person interview and it's just a local person. Mm-hmm. All my interviews around the world, all I haven't met. I've only traveled for business twice since I started this podcast. I was invited down to to Harvard in the fall to, to give an address, and I thought I might want to accept that one. Yeah, that'd be a good. One. And and I went to Toronto, you know, in in October, and I and I accepted an award from um, support her award from the Women of Inspiration. Um, awards gala in, in Canada for the work on the podcast in promoting mm-hmm. gender diversity issues, which again is just one of the groups mm-hmm. that got really interested in this screw the naysayers, you know, right. you know, theme type of thing. Mm-hmm. So if you know the fact that I'm two years in and I'm still not um, entirely clear on all these things, it doesn't surprise me. I'm in right. a little bit of shock, though, honestly, that I'm coming up on 300 episodes and that I've had some of the names that I've gotten and that I've now got the connections so that a, a good flow of, of interesting guests is, um, is not nearly as time consuming because that can take a lot of time in the early days too. It can, it can. You got to earn the right to get people yeah. to you know, speak with you. you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Just reaching out and asking, uh, it's going to be a low percentage and it is like, cause we do the reach out for our clients. And so we know the numbers and yeah, I mean, you just, you have to, unless you're already a big name in your space in which some case, some of our clients are, uh, until you get there, the podcast will give you that right to ask, but it may be, you know, it may be 12 or 18 months before you build up that level of trust and they know you're serious and then they'll go, okay, now I'll come on your show. And that's, that's human nature. They have every right to, to be picky about where they invest their time. You know, well, we both get it ourselves, yeah. you know, to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to go on these shows, but I can't say yes to all of them or I, I wouldn't have any time to do it. So <laughs> exactly. I ask questions. And if you're exactly. Really- I, I will go on an early show, but I want to see evidence that the questions that we've been talking about have been, right. you know, answered. And I can usually tell if they've had some good background advice too, because yeah. how you make the approach, as you know, is is um, as an area where people make a lot of mistakes. It is. It definitely is. We could do a whole episode on that. Um, okay. So unfortunately, we can't do that because we're running out of time. But yes. I want to make sure that we've we've talked about the podcast a lot. But where's the best place for people to go and get connected, and maybe even to get into your email list? Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of places. I know it's better to have one, but screwthenaysayers.com is absolutely the best place for the podcast. All the episodes are there. uh, The links to all of the various places you'll get it. I do have another, you know, website. uh, It's called profitwhisperer.io. And that's going to be my, that's the brand where I work with with small businesses and and help business owners um, identify opportunities to maximize profits. And if people head over there under free resources, I have a little book I wrote, Matt. It's called Demystifying Financial Statements. And it's a little fun little thing you can read in about uh, 45 minutes or something like that. That um, I've had business owners say it's sort of changed the way they've looked at their business and and made their accountants very angry with them. So if anybody kind of likes that idea, they can pick that up for free as well, um, you know, over at ProfitWhisperer.io. .io. I love it. And yes, anytime we can make accountants mad, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this will be a good start. And I'm thinking that yeah. that might be the overall theme. Maybe screw the accountants is the name for, <laughs> exactly. for my, my, my next podcast. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Well, Tim, this has been awesome. I so appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And I know people got a, a ton of value out of it. Oh, man, it's so much fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Micro Famous Podcast. If you're ready to become famously influential to the right people, connect with us at getmicrofamous.com. It's the best way to take the next step to implementing the Micro Famous strategy in your business so you can attract an audience, build influence, and become the Micro Famous leader you're meant to be. And we'll see you on the next episode.